How are you? Oh, good to see you on this long weekend. So this morning, uh, we're going to continue with our series on looking outward, um, answering the big questions about faith. Um, and just after I preach, we're actually going to have a Q&A time, question and answer time. So while I'm preaching, I'm sure there'll be questions arising in your mind. Um, remember them, or maybe even write them down, and then at the end we'll have five, seven minutes. Hopefully it's not like one minute because no one asks any questions and it's just an awkward pause. Um, but I know Al's going to ask some questions or Joel or someone. Someone's going to ask a question, right? But, um, but have a think of some questions you've got about this topic, about God and creation, or it could be more broadly. It could be about, um, yeah, any question, you know, that's been, you've been thinking about or maybe a non-Christian's asked you about or maybe you've been wondering what the heck is with this to do with Christianity and some of those big questions. But... That'd be great if it's about creation, what we're talking about this morning. Also, if that isn't enough, if the Q&A straight after the sermon isn't enough, in a fortnight we're going to have, on the last time, last um, message in this series that Craig's, Craig uh, is probably going to be delivering that one, uh, we're going to be having a pizza. Who likes pizza? Who enjoys pizza? Yeah, free pizza, time, lunch together, and then we're going to be having a, a more involved forum discussion about any other questions you've got, right? So... Um, I really get annoyed sometimes when you hear about somebody, you know, says, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm losing my faith, I'm deconstructing my faith, because there's all these questions that I, I, I were never answered for me, right? So here's the time to come and ask all those crazy questions, as well as after the sermon, and discuss them and look at some more as we delve into apologetics. Um, so yeah, so that's in a fortnight, July the 10th, straight after church, free pizza and discussion if, if you're interested. Um, so, let's begin this morning by looking at a verse. So, 1 Peter 3 verse 15 tells us, Always be prepared to give an answer to, any, to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. So, I think there's two important truths um, that jumped out to me when I read this verse recently. Firstly, defending the faith and answering questions of unbelievers is actually important, right? It's, the verse tells us to always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks, to give the reason for the hope that you have. So preparing for possible objections to Christianity, um, to the Christian faith, which is what we call apologetics. If you wonder what that word is, we keep saying, well, that just means def defending the faith or answering objections to the Christian faith. Um, then that is, this verse is telling us that that is actually necessary if we're going to be effective in our witness. And secondly, did you see what it says at the end of this verse? It says, but do this with gentleness and respect. So as Al eloquently put it before, we're not going in there to have an argument, right, or win a debate, which is sometimes when people's firing questions aggressively at you, it can be hard not to get I don't know, get a little bit fired up. But, um, but we've got to kind of resist that and make sure that any discussions when people are asking us questions or even challenging us about our Christianity, that we do it with gentleness and, um, and respect. Um, you see, I think as Christians, the ultimate way, the ultimate way, certainly for myself, that we know God exists is because we actually have a personal relationship with him, right? Even though it's not a personal relationship in terms of physically seeing him and being able to hug him, well, at least on this side of eternity, um, um, 
you know, we're going to be able to hug Jesus when we get to heaven, right? Or in the new heavens, new earth. Agreed? Right? But on this side of eternity, we don't actually, and God is spirit, we don't actually have a physical relationship, but we have a relationship with him that's more real um, than even what we see around us, right? So as Christians, we have a personal relationship. So we know there's a God in a way that's, that's, that an unbeliever um, can't know there's a God, right? So it's especially important to be sensitive to that. So when we say, I know God and I have a relationship with him, if they've got a whole lot of questions and unbelief around that, we have to be gentle with that and actually gently put forward some evidence um, for God and for Christianity, so this morning, I'd like to zoom in on just one aspect. I was going to do more than one, but just zoom in on one aspect of, some of what some of the evidence we can actually put for Christianity, and that is the evidence from creation, as we heard in the reading from Psalm 19. The, the, you know, the, the heavens declare the glory of God, um, the Bible tells us in Psalm 19, verse 1. So um, have you ever been sharing your faith with someone and they've said something to you along the lines of, oh, I don't believe in God, I believe in science. Has anyone ever heard that one before? Yeah, quite a few, right? Actually, just a little, let's do a little, um, some more audience participation, if you're okay with that. Who here, now don't be afraid, because um, I, I fall in this category, who here actually enjoyed science at, at school when they studied it? Let's see. Who's brave enough to put their hand up? Yeah, so it's a safe place. You won't be called. Yeah, so there's quite a few of you. That's just my little gauge to see how much some of you will enjoy the later part of the talk. But anyway, um, this looks like a few, so I'll have a few listening. Uh, so that's good. But, um, but a lot of people have this idea, don't they, that I don't believe in God. I believe in science. Like there's some contrast between believing in God and believing in science, right? There's this inference that, by belie- that believing in God is irrational and that God has been disproved by science. You know? Well, and in my experience, the most common objection people have to Christianity is kind of along these lines. Um, another objection you might hear is no one can prove that God exists or no one can know if God exists. Right? Now, sometimes we Christians can be silent here and actually affirm these incorrect statements. There's actually a lot of scientific evidence that we're just going to skim the surface of this morning that actually points to a creator. Right? And there's some very convincing um, philosophical proofs for God's existence. Now, don't worry, don't worry. We're not going to get into philosophical proofs this morning because I know I'll lose practically everyone. Maybe some of you like philosophy. Uh, but, um, but I encourage you, if you are interested in, in philosophy, to have a look into them for, for yourself. Now, before we get right underway, let's look what the Bible tells us about evidence for God's existence. Let's have a look at Romans 1 verse 18 to 20. It says, The wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. And here's the really important verse for us this morning. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, been understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. 
Right? Isn't this an amazing verse? It says so much in this verse. In the first 18, it actually says that we, we know there's a God deep down, all of us, right? Because we're created for a relationship with Him. That's our deepest desire. Our deepest part of us is spiritual and longs for a relationship with Him. So we, ultimately, everyone knows there's a God, even if unbelief and all these ideas and societies told them otherwise. But the second, in verse 20, it talks about the fact that actually... None of us are without excuse because God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, been understood from what has been made. So from this scripture and from other ones, we see that um, God's existence can be clearly seen from creation. But we humans suppress the, the truth of this because of our unbelief and rebellion against God. And it's interesting that people regularly bring this whole objection against Christianity of this supposed clash between science and Christianity because this, this verse in the Bible tells us that one of the clearest evidences for God's existence is from creation itself. In fact, if you look at the course of science over particularly the last hundred years, it's become more and more apparent from the incredible fine-tunedness, we're going to look at that more later, the fine-tuning of the universe so that there could be life of any kind, and also the complexity of the universe. The more science goes on, the more incredibly complex we see physics, the laws of physics are, and, and biology on every level of the universe, how complex it is. Um, and when we see all of this complexity and this fine-tuning in the universe, the most reasonable explanation uh, for, for it is that there is actually an intelligent creator behind it all. And so just one example of this kind of progressive realization of this as science has gone forward is um, that before the early 20th century, before a, a guy called Einstein came along, it was believed by practically everyone except for Christians and, and people with a theistic worldview, it was believed that the universe was eternal, right? That the universe had no beginning. And both atheists and most of the Eastern religions like Hinduism believe this, that there was no need to explain who created the universe because it was eternal, it's always been, right? And atheists in particular before the, 20th, the early 20th century were committed to this belief and actually resisted a lot of the data that was show, starting to show otherwise um, because without a beginning, the universe didn't need to have a cause like God, right? However, but modern science is unanimous now in agreeing that the universe had a beginning. And, but here's the thing, science has no explanation for what caused this beginning and no explanation for the unbelievably precise fine-tuning that occurred in the physical constants of the universe that allowed the universe to begin and to expand in the first place. Now, I know some of you that just just forget the last sentence I said. But basically, the universe is, in, is incredible because it was fine-tuned by an intelligent agent. There's no way to um, think otherwise for the whole thing to start. And all the physical constants of the universe were so fine-tuned that if there's just been a fraction out, sometimes down to a ridiculous you know, 10 to the minus 120, they've been slightly different, the universe couldn't have formed. So anyway, um, that's how amazing the universe that we live in is. Now, maybe I've lost some people, but at, at, when I was at primary school, I got really interested in like, you know, because when I was growing up, everything was about science. I was a, 
a kid in the 80s and, and like I used to watch, I think it was called Beyond 2000 on TV, and it was saying, through science, we're going to be flying in cars. You know, there's going to be flying cars. Did that happen? You remember Back to the Future? No, it didn't happen. There's going to be underwater cities that we're in beyond the year 2000. Did that happen? No? Right, through science, and then you watch sci-fi shows, and like, we're going to solve all our problems. There's going to be no more war and famine, and there's going to be, you know, just this... this utopia through science. We're going to solve every problem and, and be on flying skateboards. But did that happen? I was so disappointed in the year 2000 and just driving down Colombo Street in Christchurch and looking, everything looks the same as when I was growing up as a kid. We've got the internet, whoop-de-doo, whoop -de like it's not that great. Well, it wasn't in the year 2000 anyway, but um, like it was really disappointing, right? So growing up, I was, you know, convinced by all this stuff, you know, because science was still king back then before the turn to postmodernism that we talk about. Um, and, um, and I got excited about science. I thought, if I can understand atoms and, and neutrons and protons, then I can understand how the whole universe works, right? And I'll be this giant brain that understands everything, right? So as a primary school kid, right, I got into science, and my friends all called me boffin, which basically means nerd, right? That I was a scientist slash nerd. Um, and, um, but I was sadly disappointed through primary school, high school, and then through university, kind of doing physics and maths, that it didn't really help me understand a whole lot of the big questions in life, the why questions, the um, how human beings work, a whole lot of things that didn't answer for me, but I was still excited about it. So excited I became an engineer later and, and a research engineer in communication systems. But, um, but yeah, which... Yeah, kind of, I've always had this love for trying to understand the universe, understand how it all works. And um, now let's have a look, because, so what has happened in the last few hundred years? Well, science came along as king, and it started to say things like, Christianity isn't science, therefore it's not true. And one of the biggest challenges, even in the last, you know, I'd say, um, you know, 50, 100 years, of why a lot of people have um, maybe rejected Christianity, is the supposed tension between what Christianity says about the origin of the universe and how it all came about and, and, um, and what the Bible says and what science says, right? But as we've looked at on the fundamentals, Christianity has actually proved the correct view that the universe had a beginning and, um, and there was a cause to that that science can't explain. But Let's have a look at these different, uh, well, well, bring that up in a sec, but let's look at these different views of how Christians have dealt with this challenge, particularly around those first few chapters of Genesis, right? How, do we as, how have we as Christians dealt with that? Um, so there's been a few different approaches to the challenge of evolution and also the challenge of uh, modern science about the apparent age of the universe. So, yep, we're going to go there this morning. You ready? All right, hold on to your seats. Uh, we're not going to go into too much detail for the sake of time, but some people have taken this position um, of young earth creationism, right? And this is, this is taking a, a more literal um, approach to interpreting the early chapters of Genesis and believing that the universe is six to 10,000 years old. Um, others have taken... Um, Another position, which is old earth creationism. And there's also another kind of position you could talk about that kind of is similar, progressive creationism. But basically, both these stances interpret Genesis differently. But they endorse the claim of modern science that the universe is around 13.8 billion years old. 
Now, old earth creationism, however, has critiqued the theory of evolution along with young earth creationism and have been skeptical of macroevolution. And all macroevolution means is that species have evolved into other species. Microevolution means that species vary, right? Which you see when you breed dogs or cats. I don't think anyone really questions that. But macroevolution is this idea that species evolve from one species to another. And then finally, the other way Christians have dealt with this is theistic evolution. And so theistic evolutionists have rejected the theory that evolution was unguided and that species evolved only by chance and survival of the fittest. Basically, theistic evolutionists are Christians who believe that macroevolution did occur, but that God guided evolution so species were able to evolve one from the other. Now, theistic evolution um, also has the least literal interpretations of the early chapters of Genesis. Um, so there's a little summary of the three main approaches. Now, this is definitely a spectrum, so there's other positions um, within that, but these are the three main approaches to this question of the age of the universe and um, evolution. Now, the first point I want to make, that each one of these approaches people that are serious about it, both take the Bible and science seriously when they um, try and work out how this all works, right? And as fellow Christians, regardless of which of these three views or somewhere in between we all fit, um, we all agree that God created the universe, that he guides it and sustains it, and that there is actually clear evidence, both from fine-tuning and design in some sense, that we can present to our atheists and non-Christian friends. So it's easy to get, I don't know, a little bit worked up. Some, I mean, especially people that are passionate about science and really get into this, worked up and, and with, against kind of other Christians that have a different view, but actually the commonalities that we have are far vaster than people that don't believe in God or don't believe um, in any kind of spiritual realm. And, um, and I think it's important for all of us to look into this, however deeply or however much time we've got, to look into this matter for ourselves and arrive at what we think is firstly the most biblically sound and secondly the most scientifically reasonable position when it comes to these matters, but also show charity to those who differ from ourselves on this issue. And when we're talking to non-Christians, so getting back to one of the points of our series, which how do we engage with non-Christians when we're talking about creation? Well, I think it's really important to not get in, deliberately get into a debate about evolution with a non-Christian, as this is just a distraction from the gospel. And also from all the clear evidence we can present for God's fingerprints that are actually shown all around us in creation. And now if a non-Christian asks me about evolution, which actually has only really happened, they might talk about science in general and one of those statements I said earlier, but they really ask me directly about evolution. But if they do, um, I just usually outline the three or four main ways that we just went over um, about how Christians deal with this issue. And then I just present the clear, I may or may not say what my view is at that time, but and then I present the the clear scientific evidence that there is that we're going to look at in a moment for the incredible fine-tuning and design that's in the universe. And then I tell them it's actually irrelevant how all this, whether it was an event or a process 
of how all this complexity got there or how, why all this fine-tuning is there in the first place. The fact that there is such evidence demands an explanation, and, and I believe the only reasonable explanation is an intelligent creator of everything. Right, before we get into the science bit, um, I want to give you just a little illustration that I use a lot that I, I've stole off many different evangelists um, of how we actually communicate this to a non-Christian. So imagine, Sarah, could you come up here? Sorry, I, this is Craig's fault. He did it the other week. But, um, but so imagine I'm talking to Sarah and saying, hey, um, and she's, she's not a Christian and, we, and we're chatting and I say, hey, uh, Sarah, and imagine we're outside. I say, Sarah, imagine that building over there right? Imagine if I told you that that building came about through chance. It was just like an accident happened and it formed the exact pillars, the glass, the doors. Would you believe me? No. No, you wouldn't? Yeah. Well, what about if I told you that building happened over millions of years and it was just a, a mixture of like sand blowing and forming glass? And would you believe me if I told you that's how that building came about? Yeah, that's pretty silly. Yeah. So you get where we're going with this, right? And so... If you see a building, how do, you, how do you think that building came about? Somebody built it. Yeah, someone built it. Awesome. So building, builder, right? It's a self-evident truth. Thanks, Sarah. You can sit down. So that's, that's what I'd say to someone. And then I'd tell them, um, look at their hand. So I want everyone to do this. Everyone look at your hand, right? Did you know in your hand there's um, any doctors or... So other scientists can correct me here, but your body has billions of cells, so I assume that's almost billions of cells in your hand, right? Billions of cells, right? Now, each cell in your hand is more complicated than the most complicated car factory, and in the middle of it, it's got DNA, which is more complicated than any computer um, program in the world, right? And all those cells and all those um, DNA, everything works together so that you can do things like this, or you can do this, or you can... <laughs> high five someone, or you can shake hands. It all works together, and all that complexity works together, right, so that you can do all these amazing things with your hands, right? So creation, creator, is a self-evident truth. All the complexity we see around us shows us that it didn't just come about purely through chance. There's a creator, there's design. And your human brain is wired to see. When you see... Um, something highly complex and obviously designed, your human brain goes, who made that? It doesn't go, could that have come about through chance, right? Um, now, you can get in debate with people about is that apparent design or real design, but as we go, go through, I think we're going to see that it's more than just apparent design. Um, so that's, that's often the illustration I use, and it can be a lot shorter version than that, just builder, builder, hand, creation, creator, that easy to explain to someone. So let's have a look at a little bit more of the evidence that there is for complexity and fine-tuning of the universe. So there's so much evidence we could look at here, but I just want to zoom in on um, three areas of evidence. The first is, what, what does that look like to you? Everyone know what that is? DNA, right? DNA, is, as I said before, is more complicated than any computer program um, and contains vast amounts of specified information. And no known natural process can explain how all that information got there 
for every human and animal cell in existence. Now, we can certainly explain somewhat how DNA works, how a cell works, how it replicates, but how did all that information that's encoded in DNA get there in the first place? Like, there's so much information. Like I said, it's, um, Bill Gates had admitted um, this as well, that it's more complicated than any computer um, program in the world. And it, and it replicates, it, it um, builds a cell, and I'm sure the, the doctors and people that have studied that in depth can give, me, give us a lot more information about how that works. But how did all that information to be able to produce an animal get there in the first place? Um, science just can't explain that. If you found a book on the ground, right, you were just walking along the road and you found a book and you picked it up and you started reading all the screeds of information, it might be a fiction book or it might be a non-fiction book, what would be your first assumption? Would it be that someone wrote that book or would it be that it wrote itself over time? What would be your assumption? You know, saying that DNA came about through chance and accident is like saying a book wrote itself, right? Um, imagine another thing. Imagine you had monkeys on typewriters, right? And they were just banging the keys, and you could keep them doing it, and they're throwing bananas around, and, and they just keep going. Like, do you think you'd get a book after an hour of them banging on the keys, like a whole book that made sense. You wouldn't, would you? you think you'd get after 100 years? Do you think you'd get a full book after thousands of years? You wouldn't. You'd never get that, you'd never get that through just random chance, right? That, maybe you say to me, oh, Chris, maybe after time, after a very long time, right, you might get a book. But a book is almost impossible to produce through random chance, and that's exactly what DNA is. And furthermore, if the monkeys don't break the typewriter or break each other or throw bananas everywhere, you know, things are going to break down, right? So chance and time don't actually help a whole lot when it comes to high information systems like DNA. Just to give you one final illustration, imagine you sat down at your computer one day. Who has a PC here? Still has a PC, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I mean, most people have a PC at work, right? And you found this incredibly complex program there, and it, you don't know where it had come from, right? Maybe if you're a programmer, you could go on and have a look at that program, work at how it worked, um, but you couldn't necessarily say who wrote it or how it came to be in the first place. But the idea that that program came about through chance or there was just a series of completely random software glitches on your machine that produced an incredibly complicated program that could do all this amazing stuff that astounds you, that would never enter your mind, would it? So I just want to think about what DNA is and then think about it coming about through unguided chance. It, it just can't. Um, you know, when I started studying in my intermediate year of engineering at university, they sat us down in, in one of our papers and said, look, now we're going to explore the most fundamental law of science. This is the law of science we most know the most about, right? We, we can be most certain of this law of science more than anything. The lecturer did this big introduction. I go, wow, what is this? And then he said to, then he said to us, it's the second law of thermodynamics. And all that means is that everything tends towards chaos, right? <laughs> Basically, I mean, it means a lot of things, but it means that, right? And I just got so excited because I've been reading books for years about this stuff. He says, this is the thing we're most certain about, right? And basically what this means is if you have a junkyard, right, and you get bulldozers on, on random control, 
what do you get? Do you end up with, an air, with a 747 plane if enough time goes by? No, you end up with more junk and smaller junk, right? Things get more chaotic, and information breaks down. Order and information don't get created over time. They get broken down, right? So at the most fundamental law of science that we know, according to my very knowledgeable engineering professor, is contradicts this idea that information can kind of gradually form over time that we see in DNA. So that's, that's one evidence. The next one I want to look at very briefly for the sake of time is human language, right? You might not have thought about this, but we as human beings actually have an innate ability to speak language. And when we hear a few words, which is very little context, we, can't, we don't actually learn the whole language. It's actually hardwired. A universal human language is hardwired in every human when they're born. And when they hear certain words of a certain language, it kind of clicks to how to express that, that universal language. Um, this is an amazing evidence that there's a creator. You see, this innate ability of humans to learn and use language in a near infinite way to bridge the gap between abstract representations and the facts of experience is incredible, and I'll explain why. You know, the late 20th century and mid 20th century, lots of atheists and, and naturalist people that believe all there is is the natural world, um, they started to say, hey, the human language obviously evolved, right? So if we take apes and gorillas in particular, because they're the most intelligent animals we can find, we could teach them the human language. We could teach them how to speak. So they were very optimistic that they could do this. Guess what? That failed dismally, right? They could get apes and gorillas to memorize a whole lot of you know, words and put two words together so that they could get a banana or communicate something in their immediate environment. But no matter how hard they tried, you know, a gorilla couldn't get nearly the vocabulary of a kid that's just learning to speak. What age is that? Usually two, three. They couldn't have that massive vocabulary. And there's a whole lot of things that no animals have ever been able to do. One is they can't use grammar, right? They can't construct a sentence. Any kind of putting together of words is just because they're memorizing those things mean they'll get a banana, right, when they put them two together, right? They, they can't, they never ask questions. There's no self-awareness there. And they never communicate anything outside of any immediate stimuli. They have no sense of the future, no sense of self, no sense of um, any kind of abstract reasoning. So that was a shock to many. And actually, as linguists have studied and um, biologists have studied this more in depth, and, and actually another guy, Einstein, who I referred to earlier, we know him from physics, but as he studied this, he was, he was a, obviously a coddled brainiac that went in multiple fields, they realized there was this massive gulf between how human beings can abstract things with their minds, you know, and how we can apply that to reality that no animal can do. And the only viable explanation is that we humans are created in the image of God. There's no way we, you can even dream up how this language was hardwired and how we can do what we do as humans um, any other way than some kind of design, some kind of innate design that's there. There's no way that could have um, evolved. So I'd like, before all your questions, I'd like to finish with one more example. And that's the fine-tuning of the planet Earth right? The one we're all standing on or sitting on or right now, right? Have you ever thought, have you ever heard someone say, 
um, something like this, like, oh, there's got to be aliens out there, right? There's got to be aliens, because there's so many planets in this vast universe, there's got to be one of them that's kind of like ours that can sustain some kind of life. Have you guys ever heard that? I've heard, lots of, I've heard it on the news by scientists say things like that. But when you actually start to look at the science of this, it's pretty crazy. So um, we actually know now approximately how many stars are in the whole universe, right? So then we know an upper limit to how many possible planets could be in our whole universe, right? And the chances that there could just be one, if it was just purely through chance, if God didn't actually design this planet for us and put us on it, if it was just purely through chance, the chances that there's one planet in the entire universe that's able to support any kind of life, not just life as we know it, is zero, is such a low number, it's effectively called zero. And to work this out isn't as hard as it sounds. We just need to look at some of the over 50 factors that need to be fine-tuned to just the right amount to support any kind of life. So let's look at the six most understandable ones up here on the projector. The first is Earth's surface gravity, right? If it was slightly greater, if the Earth was slightly bigger, we'd have too much ammonia and methane in the atmosphere. If it was fewer, if our planet was slightly smaller, we'd not have enough water in the atmosphere, and the Earth couldn't support any life, right? Earth's distance from the sun, this one's a bit more obvious, right? If we're a bit closer, and we're talking quite fine-tuned figures here, some of these are a fraction of a percent, some are a few percent, but if it was slightly closer, we'd be uh, sorry, if it was slightly greater, further away, would be too cold, right? They couldn't, life would be a, a frozen planet, and no life of any kind could be on planet Earth. If we're closer, too hot. Do I need to go through all these? Earth's rotation period, right? Rotation period. Um, if it was greater, we'd, winds would be too fierce to have any life. If it was fewer temperature extremes from day to night would mean that there could be no life. Um, thickness of the Earth's crust, carbon dioxide level, and the final one, ozone level. If it was too cold, uh, sorry, if it was greater, if our ozone layer was greater, then the Earth would be too cold, and if it was fewer, it would be too hot, right? This is just six of over 50 factors that scientists have found so far um, about them. And some of them are things like how many asteroids we have in the solar system to protect planet Earth. There's just so much fine-tuning that it means... It's an absolute miracle that there's... Now, basically what you do, you take all these percentages, right? You know, whether it's 99.8% uh, or whether it's 90%, and you multiply them all out, and you get an astronomically unbelievable chance of there being a planet within this fine-tuning, right? Um, and then you look at how many planets in the universe, and you eat, and, and throw that in your equation, and you come up with a zero chance of any planet in the universe being able to sustain life. You know, and that just blows me away. Um, the fact that we're on this planet Earth at all is a miracle, not a freak chance. So all of creation, in conclusion, points us to an amazing creator who cares for us and sustains our world and the whole universe. And this Matariki weekend, as we think about the stars in particular, we can say that the heavens declare um, the glory of God. And as we read in Romans, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. So let's just pray before we have a short Q&A session.
So yeah, Jesus, thank you so much um, that we can see the truth, so much truth in your word, Lord God. We can know the truth that you came, that you died for us, that you love us, that, that salvation's found in your name and belief in your name, Jesus. So thank you for the truth of your word and thank you the truth we can see in creation and that shows your glory. Even though there's some challenges to our faith because it takes a bit of work, thank you. And the more we look into creation, the more we can see your glory. We can see your, that you are creator God, that you love us, that you're a personal God that cares and looks after this universe that you created. So thank you for that. And if anyone doesn't know you um, here this morning, I pray that they'll look into this, that they'll, they'll look into the Bible and read the Bible for themselves and look into Jesus, but look into creation and all the evidence that's there for them. And for those of us that are um, Christians, I pray you give us an, a greater confidence as we look into this more as we go through this series and, um, and a boldness to share this with others um, with gentleness and with respect. Um, as we um, share the hope we have in you. So thank you for this time, and I just praise you, Jesus. Amen. Cool. All right. Who's going to kick off the next five minutes or so with a question? Now, you can ask anything. I won't be offended. Non-Christians ask me all kinds of crazy things, and, you know, like, um, and Christians sometimes, uh, and like attack, and, and so it's all good. So we'll not be offended, and any question's okay. So what question have you got? Or if you're, if you're a scientist, you can correct something I, I said wrong there. But, um, yo. Yeah, why? What, why, for what in particular? Being a little bit zooming in. Yeah. Why did he create it all? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty um, deep philosophical reason. I mean, kids kind of ask, why, why, why? But we keep asking, why don't we? Why did God create it all? I mean, that's probably like the realm of theologians somewhat speculating. But I mean, God definitely created um, creation to glorify himself, to express his love. Um, yeah, all those kind of reasons, theologians. But yeah, there's real mystery there, isn't there? Like, why? <laughs> For sure. Cool question. I'll be thinking about that tonight and tomorrow and next week. It's good. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, for the vast majority of people, um, even people with university training, even sometimes with, you know, training in the discipline that you're going to be talking about, it is just a surface thing. Like, particularly if you say, oh, there's no proof for God's existence. You say, oh, oh, great, I just wanted to show you about six or seven right now. And you start going through, and almost by saying what those six or seven real strong philosophical proofs or evidence from creation that we've looked at are, but even listing them, um, often that is enough for them, right? Because they've just bought into this line that, you know, science has disproved God or there's no evidence for God. Or, and once you actually just start, oh, actually, there's some really good evidence. What do you think of it? They, yeah, usually um, the objection goes away, so... Yeah, yeah, I think it's different for everyone. So if you guys weren't here earlier in the year, we've been doing this, this series here as part of a wider series on outreach in general. And earlier this year, we, we talked about how to share the gospel and how to share your testimony. And now we're kind of moving into what objections there'll be when you do that. And so often when you share the gospel, there were all kinds of responses, right? So generally, I share the gospel first. And then usually, if they're, particularly if the Holy Spirit's really convicting them or they're interested or, or, um, or they just, sometimes it's more that they're just, don't like hearing that it's 
could be true, and so they fire all these questions at you and are not really interested in the answers. But other times they are really interested in the answers of the questions they ask. So it usually kind of goes around sharing the gospel, and then there can be, yeah, when you probe a little bit deeper, um, there can be all kinds of reasons why. Um, I mean, for some people it's like, hey, yeah, it all makes sense to me, but I just don't want to become a Christian. I don't want to give up this, 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 or I'm afraid of what my friends think, or I don't have enough information, or there can be all kinds of... And a great question to ask, if somebody throws you a question that really stumps you, say, oh, that's a great question. Why do you ask that? Right? Ask them, why are you asking that question? Especially, as Craig looked at a fortnight ago, about the problem of evil, right? If someone asks you, say, oh, so why do you, why do you ask that question? Because there might be someone close to them has died, or it might just be a more philosophical question, right? So it's always good to ask why you, if someone throws a question at you, regardless of what it is or how much you know about it, to ask them why they ask that. And then they can often tell you <laughs> why they're asking and what their ultimate hang-up is. Um, so, yeah, awesome question now. <laughs> yeah, so that's a really good question. Sarah asked, how, how much do you need to know to answer these questions? Well, like I said before, even the most, you know, even when I do evangelism on a university, most people have just taken these pat answers, like there's no proof, da, 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 and never thought about it beyond that, right? So you don't actually need to know a lot. You don't need to read hundreds of books. You know, there's probably only about, I'd say 12 to 18 main questions, this being one of them, science, hasn't it disproved God, um, that anyone will ask, right? And a lot of them are a lot less complex than this to answer, right? They might be, you know, um, why do Christians hate this group of people or, or what about the Old Testament or, you know, and like, so there's probably only about 12 to 18 main questions anyone answers. And so once you do a bit of work, maybe read one slim book, you can, you can um, satisfy free answer most of those questions. So don't feel this is an overwhelming task, learning apologetics that you can't do. In fact, if you like watching YouTube clips, there's a million YouTube clips out there. I'll put some, um, if you're interested, email me, or I might even put some links of some great YouTube clips you can just watch of different people um, explaining, sometimes in under five minutes, you know, a really um, important objection to the Christian faith and how to explain it in five minutes. It really is that, that easy. All right, maybe one or two more, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's an awesome question. That would be a whole other session, which is awesome. On the fact that we live, you know, we're in a Western context here in New Zealand, right? Now, we're increasingly multicultural and obviously bicultural, but we're in a, we're in a, a, a you know, bias Pākehā is anyway a Western context. And so since the 1700s in the West, you know, before the 1700s, practically everyone claimed they were a Christian in the Western world. You know, guys like John, um, like Newton, who, you know, came up with some of the fundamental understanding of modern science, was a Christian, or at least some kind of Christian, maybe a deist, but they were all Christians, or said they were anyway, and had Christian beliefs. But in the 1700s, this thing happened called the Enlightenment that started to question legitimately a lot of the superstition and Western culture and other cultures and start to see, as science made strides, starts to see that actually reason and science were a very good tool for solving a lot of our problems. They probably went too far and decided that reason and science could solve all problems and wrote off all other kind of disciplines that didn't actually use 
the scientific message of testing and repeatable experiments. But that was where it started. And it, unfortunately, that reasoning went to the point of saying, hey, we can explain everything, including God. And so this doubt about God's existence started to creep in, in the 1700s. And, you know, and now today, you know, if you go to university, most intellectuals, unfortunately, will a much higher percentage anyway than in the wider population will be atheists because of, because of that. So in the West, we've, we've, started, we've doubted God's existence, and not only God, but also the supernatural realm. We think that all there is is the physical realm. So we've become materialistic, we've become um, hedonistic, we've become nihilistic, which just means we think there's no point to life, so just have fun. Life's all about having fun, right? Isn't that what people say about their children? As long as they're having fun, that's all that's important, Right? As long as they're enjoying life, right? That's our philosophy. Because if there is no God and the physical realm is all there is, we die, that's it, then what is there to do except just have fun because it's all going to be over? So that's the kind of Western unbelief about God and the supernatural. But it's not there in other cultures. It's certainly not there in non-Western cultures to the same degree. Um, all right, one more question, and then thank you for these questions, guys. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and some of us, that's a great question. So, you know, what are we there to do? Well, I think primarily we're there, like we looked at in the first series, to share the gospel, right? Especially those of us that are kind of maybe called, more called to go and share the gospel with lots of strangers, then we're going to always be bombarded with questions. So then it's, it's good to be equipped to better answer some of these questions. But our primary task is to share the gospel, is gospel and uh, share the, the reason we have the the um, hope we do to share about God and Jesus Christ dying on the cross and sin and that whole picture, that's what we're primarily there to do. But non-Christians are legitimately going to say, well, that's nice for you, but how does it, I don't care, or what about other religions or all these other questions? So then we're going to be kind of forced to give some reasons, I suppose. Now, that's not to say, um, yeah, that's not to say that we have to answer every question. Like if someone says a question that, you're stumped on, just say, oh, that's an awesome question. I haven't thought about that, but can I get back to you about it, right? So we don't have to have all the answers. And some, like Craig looked at a fortnight ago, with the problem of evil and suffering, right? We don't have all the answers. We have some really good answers we can give, but we certainly don't have all the answers. So yeah, we're not there to, um, and yeah, answer all their questions, because we can't. We're not God, right? But we answer what questions we can as we get the time and space to research it more ourselves. So that would be a great question. All right, thanks so much, guys. We're going to... Over to Joyce. Thank you.